Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. I'm glad that we can be together today. We are continuing our series of lessons from Thessalonians. And our lesson today, we'll be looking at three short verses. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18. But before we get into the lesson, let's bow our heads for prayer. I want us to pray together the prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. One of my favorite shows to watch on television was the show Antiques Roadshow. And if you've ever seen this show, people will bring items that they own, and they'll have these uh, items appraised by a professional. Now, sometimes they know the items are valuable, but often people will bring in things that have been lying around their house. And it's always a dramatic moment when someone is told, that old blanket that's been laying in the top of your closet for years, actually, it, it's a rare specimen of Native American art. You know, it's worth several hundred thousand dollars. Well, today we're looking at a few short verses from 1 Thessalonians. And these are often overlooked. We don't realize the value of them. They don't seem to be that big a deal. But in reality, they have the power to transform our lives. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Implementing these three commands unlocks a mechanism that God uses to sanctify us, to transform us into the image of Christ. When we fail to see the value of these commands, we miss out on an extraordinary resource that God has provided for us. We toss this word sanctification, we toss it around a lot. As Nazarenes, we insist that it's important. We insist the experience of sanctification is necessary if we are going to have the full, abundant salvation that God has provided for us. But what do we mean by it? Simply put, to be sanctified is to be made like Christ. Sanctification is the process that the Holy Spirit uses to transform us into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes, and we all are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. So, we are being made to be like Christ. Christ shows us what God is like, Colossians 1.15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. So, to be transformed into the image of Christ also means that we fulfill Christ's command given in Matthew Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, this is sanctification, to be transformed into Christ's image and thus to be made perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the essential characteristic of Christ, the core of what defined Christ, was His commitment to glorify the Father through the 
complete consecration and fulfillment to the will of the Father. As Christ, Jesus did nothing on his own. He only did what was commanded by the Father. Over and over again, he stressed this to his disciples. I am here to do nothing on my own, but only what the Father has commanded me. In John chapter 5, verses 19, and again in verse 31, we read, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. By myself, I can do nothing, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. And then in John 6, 38, Jesus writes, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. We get an understanding of this from Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, this was right before he was to go to the cross. And in Matthew 26, 39, we read, And going a little farther, he, that is Jesus, fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So here we see Jesus knowing what it will mean to go to the cross, asking the Father, let this happen in some other way. We can see the true humanity of Jesus. Going to the cross was an incredible ordeal, even for Jesus. However, Jesus goes on to say, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again in verse 42, For the second time Jesus went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So in the garden, we see the commitment of Jesus to doing the will of the Father, no matter what it took. Now, this desire to give glory is not just a characteristic of Jesus. It is actually the defining characteristic of the Trinity itself. The Trinity, the three distinct persons of the Godhead, are yet one. They are united in one God through their interaction and relationship with one another. The three members of the Trinity exist to mutually glorify each other. The Spirit exalts the Son, the Son exalts the Father, the Father glorifies the Son, the Son lauds the Spirit. We see this continual process of glorification, each member of the Trinity giving and receiving glory from the others. Scripture tells us this. John 17, 1, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And later, in John 16, 14, Jesus prays, He, that is the Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The early church fathers borrowed a term from Greek theater, to describe this existence of the Godhead. They called it perichoresis. It's a, a theater term that describes a circle dance where you see many members dancing together, but all creating one unified, interweaving whole. Now, what is incredible is we are invited to join in this dance. We are invited to join the glorification of the Godhead to enter into this process where God's love flows into our lives 
And that love transforms us so that we are then able to enter God's love fully and completely. We are able to love God in return with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. This is the culmination of our salvation. It's what we were created for. The Westminster Confession says, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. When we're caught up in this dance, we experience that life to the full that Jesus promised us. We experience a whole new dimension of life that opens up to us. Our life expands in in ways and directions we never thought possible. It's interesting, when scientists describe the size of our universe, they are forced to use such large numbers that really it, it goes beyond our comprehension. The universe is just too vast, too big. Beyond a certain point, we just cannot grasp what these numbers really mean. Even more amazing, though, scientists tell us not only is the universe larger than we can imagine, it's getting even larger by the minute. Our universe is constantly expanding. While we're sitting here, the universe is growing larger and larger. Now, I I think this is a great metaphor for our Christian life. We begin this path of sanctification, and our experience of God expands to become something far greater than we ever thought possible. And even more amazing, this sanctification process continues to expand indefinitely. There is no limit to the relationship we can have with an infinite God. But to enter this dance, this requires our sanctification. We have to become like Christ. We have to become fully committed and consecrated to fulfilling the Father's will so that we can bring glory to the Father. In these three commands that Paul gives us, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, Paul provides us with three powerful strategies that God uses to sanctify us. Three strategies that bring us into this dance of glorifying God. Three commands that, if we will follow them, they will allow us to bring glory to the Father and to become more and more like the Son. Today, we're going to look at this first command, rejoice always. Now, when we rejoice always, we glorify God by making a deliberate choice a choice to recognize and proclaim God at work in our world, God at work in the present moment, supplying us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. When we rejoice always, we are proclaiming our God reigns. To rejoice in something is to take new joy, to find fresh enjoyment, delight, pleasure in it. So when we rejoice, We are renewing our delight in God. To rejoice is more than just a feeling or an emotion. You know, many times our emotions are not under our control. But to rejoice, that is a choice that we make. So, what makes this so difficult? What can keep us from rejoicing? First, it may be hard for us to rejoice because the past and the future have such a grip on us. 
To rejoice is to recognize God at work now in the present. And this is hard for us because we are creatures in time. We want to relegate God's working to the past. We recognize that God has been at work in this world. But we dismiss that by saying, well, that was then. That was Bible times. That was the early church. God doesn't work that way anymore. Or we may want to delegate God's working to the future. We firmly believe that God will eventually redeem this world, that God will eventually make all things new. But again, we want to put that off at some point far in the future. But in reality, God only works in the present. For Him, there is no past, there is no future. God exists outside of time. Now, we limit ourselves by feeling that the past will control the present or by fearing what is going to happen in the future. But for God, there is only now, and this is the time when He is working. No matter the past, no matter the future, these are the constructs of our minds. But for God, there's only the reality of the present, a present in which He is at work, a present, a present where we can recognize this and we can rejoice in the fact that God is at work. And when we do this, we glorify Him. Now, we can also find it difficult to rejoice because we place such an importance on our circumstances. We emphasize the situation in which we find ourselves. We feel that the circumstances of our life determine whether we can be fulfilled or not, whether we can be content or not, whether we're joyful or not. So, we chase satisfaction and fulfillment through our experiences, through the things we encounter in our everyday lives. We chase the right experiences, the experiences that we believe will fulfill us. Maybe we chase the right work experience. We, we try to have the right job. We chase experiences through our relationship. We, we feel we'll be fulfilled only if we can experience romance with the right person. We chase amusements and recreations and hobbies, finding our fulfillment through the right circumstances of life. But actually, our circumstances, the situation we find ourselves in, these have no inherent effect on our satisfaction or our contentment with life. In themselves, our circumstances mean nothing. They have no meaning. It is only as we filter them through our, our mental frameworks that we assign them meaning. It's only then that they begin to affect our satisfaction, our fulfillment. As proof of this, we know that the exact same circumstance can have very different meanings for us. It can affect us in different ways. For example, we may be very pleased with the bonus that we receive at work until we find out a co-worker receives a bonus twice as large. Then, even though the size of our bonus hasn't changed, we're far less satisfied with it. I like this quote, When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. There's a concept in psychology called hedonic adaptation. And this is the idea that despite life's ups and downs, 
people have a tendency to return to a fixed point of happiness or unhappiness. For example, those who win the lottery, they're ecstatic at first, but eventually they get used to the fact, and it really fails to impact their overall happiness. Dr. Sanjeev Chopra is a Harvard professor, and in a TED talk that he gave, he said, winning a 20 million lottery ticket won't make you happier. Research has shown after one year, lottery winners go back to their baseline. In fact, some are even less happy. So, we know that our circumstances cannot be depended upon. And yet, we evaluate our lives, we evaluate our success or our failure at life, how we feel about how our life is going, based on the circumstances of each day. Our tendency is to crawl into bed at night, and before we drift off to sleep, we review our day, and we look at everything that's happened in all of the circumstances, and then we decide, was this a good day? Was it a bad day? But I like the way Matthew Westerholm writes about this. He writes that we have this exactly backwards. Instead of waiting until the evening to determine if it's a good day or not, we should get up each morning secure in the knowledge that it is a good day because whether it's good or not is not going to depend upon the circumstances of that day, but because we know that God is the true source of our satisfaction and contentment. Psalm 90 verse 14, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. So, we recognize God at work. We rejoice when we realize that God, not circumstances, is the source of our abundant life, the source of all that is best. So, how do we go about this? How do we go about rejoicing always? Well, we rejoice when we recognize God is at work in the present, by actively seeking out moments of awe, finding moments when we recognize the presence of God. Datcher Keltner describes awe as the feeling of being in the presence of something vast, something that transcends our understanding of the world. And he goes on to say that this feeling of awe is a prescription for transforming our lives because our recognition of being in the presence of something that produces awe breaks down our narcissism, the preoccupation that we have with ourselves. So, awe takes us outside of ourselves. It takes the focus off of us, frees us up from our self-centeredness. It places our attention on something far greater, far vaster than we ourselves. It focuses us on God Himself. Kirk Snyder writes, All is the commingling of dread, veneration, and wonder. A large part of what Scripture calls the fear of the Lord is all. It's an understanding of who God is. In fact, the Hebrew word for fear describes the fear we get when we are about to touch something larger than ourselves. So, experiencing all is encountering something unexpected, something unexplainable, vast, extraordinary, 
all lets us realize there is a reality that's bigger than me. There's a reality that diminishes the self and focuses us outward. And so we are encouraged to take a few moments each day to actually practice awe. And it's interesting. This is an idea that many social scientists tell us is of value, that if we will take the time every day to look for awe, it actually rewires our brain. By actively looking for uh, these, these moments of unexpected uh, reality, it, it allows us to see God moving in unexpected, extraordinary, inspiring ways, and it rewires our brain to see this more often. When you read the book of Job, you find Job in a situation that he cannot understand. He doesn't understand why all of these things are happening to him. And most of the book of Job is taken up with the arguments between Job and his friends, where each one of them is debating why these things are happening. Finally, at the end of the book, God appears. But it's interesting. God's answer to Job, when Job is desperately needing an answer, is not to tell him why. Instead, God directs Job to behold his creation, to look upon what God has created, and to feel all. So, God points Job to creation itself, and as Job looks at this creation, he experiences the awe of God, that he is in the presence of something far vaster, far grander, far uh, more of a reality than he himself. And he realizes that the answers to his questions aren't that important. Job responds by saying, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now mine eyes have seen you. So, we bring glory to God when we are overwhelmed by the reality of what God is doing for us. Through Christ, we can rejoice always in the fact that we have a great and good God, a truly awesome God. So, you need to find a practice that works for you to let you discover all. Make it a habit to set aside a few minutes each day to deliberately look for all, to encounter something unexpected, unexplainable, out of the ordinary. Now, this doesn't have to be something, uh, you know, that we think of as once in a lifetime, you know, visiting the Grand Canyon, diving the coral reefs or something like that. But it can be as simple as taking a walk around our neighborhood. It can be looking for God in the night sky. It can be admiring the glory of a sunset. It can be looking at a flower. It can be looking at a bird on their nest. There are many, many ways that we can experience God in our world, that we can look out into our world and see all. But when we experience all, our perspective shifts we realize God is at work in so many of the things around us, things that we would ordinarily think of as just as ordinary, things that we would never notice, but in reality, we can see the awe that is in them. So experiencing awe convinces us that God is at work. 
And when we do this, we can rejoice always in every situation. Rejoicing not based upon our feelings, not based upon our circumstances, but rejoicing that we have such a great and good God. And that brings glory to God. And when we bring glory to God, God sanctifies us and makes us more and more Christ-like. Now, this is a short command, rejoice always. And it can make us think that it's simple to put it into practice, but it isn't. You know, it's similar to our doctor telling us to lose weight by eating less and exercising more. That sounds simple, and it is easy to say, but it's hard to do. When we're thinking in generalities, it's easy to say rejoice always. When we add in specifics, it becomes much harder. Rejoice always when I find out I've lost my job. Rejoice always when I'm diagnosed with cancer. Rejoice always when I'm grieving the loss of a loved one. But we are, we are, are made, it's made plain to us through Scripture that we can do this and that God will enable this to be done in our lives. Now, we are doing all of this in order to become sanctified. And it's easy for us to think that for, to become sanctified, to become like Christ, we should focus on correcting our weaknesses, building up our willpower, strengthening our ability to withstand temptation. And so many times we are sincere in wanting to become sanctified. And so we focus on ourselves. You know, how can I be more holy? Am I reading my Bible enough? Am I praying enough? Am I practicing the spiritual disciplines? But the biblical approach to transformation, according to Glenn Mills, he writes, looking to Jesus is the best and surest way to become more like him. When we glorify God, when we focus ourselves on God, this is the best step that we can take to becoming like God. C.S. Lewis writes, Good things as well as bad are caught by infection. If you want to be warm, you must stand near a fire. If you want to be wet, you must get in the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are a great fountain of energy spurting up out of the very center of, of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? And so we see in these words from C.S. Lewis, you know, what we need to focus on is not how we improve ourselves, but how we draw closer to God, how we glorify God, how we find God to be our true delight in everything. And this, in turn, allows us to become more and more like Christ. I hope this is your goal this week, to, to make Christ the very center of your life and to become fully sanctified in Him. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this message uh, that you've given to us, for these words, for the secret, Lord, of how that we can glorify you and how in return you indwell within us 
and make us more and more Christ-like. Make us more and more like you. And we ask that you would make this a reality in our lives. In your name, amen.